Angus Young. How you doing? Good, Becca. The Offspring. How's it going, Becca? Dave Grohl. How you going, mate? Good, man. Pete, it's been a long time coming. Oh, Becca, hasn't it indeed? We go inside the dressing room, speak to the biggest names in music. Keith Richards, the Rolling Stones. And crack open their esky. This is exactly how I imagine you, by the way, sitting opposite me with a vodka and orange. You're a discerning chap. This is The Rider. Hey, it's Becca. Welcome back to The Rider. And happy Easter. I hope you had a fantastic long weekend. And uh, wow, what a weekend it was for gigs. Of course, if you're in the States, it would have been Coachella. The big return for that. Uh, I think seeing Harry Styles on um, Friday night just looked amazing. And there's uh, plenty more to come. And over here... Blues Fest, a big return, a, a festival that really has been back from the brink. They've had two years called off because of COVID. They almost missed this year as well because of flooding. I mean, really, it, it's a miracle that actually came off. And the worst has happened. They've lost a couple of camping grounds uh, due to flooding, but that is pretty much it. So really, well done to the team of Blues Fest. Uh, a lot of stories coming out of Byron Bay. You've seen the Hoodoo Gurus on stage, the Living End. The Angels, uh, all our exes live in Texas, which everyone is talking about. Uh, even the Whalers were on stage the other night. And the final Blues Fest performance for Midnight Oil. And I want to keep this going because Rob Hurst's drum solo is one of the best. Have a listen to this. Just insane. Rob Hurst back to his best after uh, COVID a few weeks ago. And if you miss Rob Hurst on the Rider Pod, you can catch it right now just by catching up on all platforms. And uh, last week was Dave Faulkner from the Hoodoo Gurus, who was very excited to be playing a couple of gigs alongside Midnight Oil on their farewell tour. This week on the Rider, it is legendary performer Shane Nicholson. In the late 90s, he was part of the band Pretty Violet Stain, who were born in Brisbane. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. And his solo music has been amazing over the last, well, 10, 15 years. I've got to say, Secondhand Man is one of my favourite songs of all time. And his new album, Living in Colour, is out. With the lead single, And You Will Have Your Way. And now, Helena. Three arias, 11 golden guitars. And uh, I think he's up for five more golden guitars this year as well. And I can see his Zoom screen is lit up in front of me. Shane Nicholson, how you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Mate, we go back years. You won't even remember this, but I was a little junior DJ in Brisbane in 1999, and uh, this dude came in from Pretty Violet Stain, uh, and uh, I was working at B105, and I think he came in a few times. So, uh, you know. All I those, do remember. All those years later. I remember there being some really good supporters there for us back then, and, I mean, those were the days when people at the station could be supporters. They could come to the show and really like it and then go back and play you. Play your song, you know? It was cool. Because well, it was local. You could do those things and you could yeah. support local bands. And that, that was the whole, you know, idea back then. Um, but I've got to say, you're, you're up for, what, five more golden guitars this year? Is that right? I mean, how many more do you want? However many they'll give me, I'll take them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not going to give them back. You know, yeah, I'm happy. I mean, it's always nice to be in the mix, you know, with, obviously, because it, it's um, 
I mean, no one, no one would tell you that's why they make records, but it's, it's still nice to win awards. You know, it's not, it's not terrible, you know. Well, of course <laughs> so it is. And, I, and yeah, I mean, people still have headlines like, like me right now, you know, three Arias, 11 golden guitars. Uh, you were nominated for an Aria last year. I mean, people still want to hear, hear from those artists who, uh, you, you know, are nominated or, or win. It, it's huge. Yeah, it's a cool. It's a really cool thing, especially you know. I remember as a kid sitting at home watching the arias, the golden guitars, you know, and seeing people get up there and accept the awards for the work they'd done, and and seeing you know, some sometimes they'll be crying. They were so emotional about winning this thing, and, it, and it, you just as a young artist think, man, it'd be great to kind of experience that one day, you know, and get it. And and you, it is actually really great. But what I didn't realize until I won a award for the first time was the most special thing about it is it gives you a chance to stand up in front of the entire, you know, the rest of the whole industry and actually highlight all the people that really made it happen behind the scenes that never get acknowledged. And that ends up being the coolest part of it is that you actually get to kind of mention all these people that work their guts out behind the scene and never, ever really get the acknowledgement. So that that ends up being the, the best part of it. Oh, exactly. And, um, you know, and the thing is you never know when it all comes to an end. You just, you know, strike while the iron's hot and you keep making great music and uh, you keep celebrating the wins. And, you know, I guess all those years ago, did you, did you ever think you'd go down the country angle? Um, it's more of a crossover country, but did you ever think you'd go there, you know, 25 years ago? I don't know. I mean, it was definitely part of something I listened to a lot growing up, so it wasn't that much of a stretch. You know, it was. Um, I listened to quite a bit of country, but, I guess predominantly I listened to the artists that played around in country, not so much considered country artists. People like Dylan and Neil Young, you know, they all kind of messed about with country music, but they weren't really known as country artists. And I think that's maybe where my love of trying to straddle the fence comes from, you know, like the, yeah, a little yeah. bit of country, a little bit of rock, a little bit of folk, whatever it is. But, um, but then, you know, I was also listening to, Jimmy Rogers and, you know, old country, but then also, you know, mainstream country from the 70s and 80s, but just whatever my dad was playing, you know. And the interesting thing, though, is he never really taught me or maybe he didn't even know or was aware that there were different genres of music, you know, like it was just all the same. And we, he never told me that this was a, that Elvis was a rock and roll artist or which he wasn't. He was way more a country artist than anything <laughs> yes, else. Yes, he was. Yeah, we, we will never admit to it, but... Uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, too, as well, one thing I, I noticed, um, I went to a, a, a country gig at the Enmore um, over, you know, three years ago now, but I was looking around the room and I was like, these are all rock fans. These are all people who maybe 10 years ago would have been listening to classic rock or, or grunge or whatever, and now they're gradually shifting over to popular country it's um it's it's they're all rock fans but now they're into this sort of genre yeah that's interesting well i mean it's i certainly find it a, a place a comforting place musically the older i get like the, it's so song based you know i mean maybe not so much popular country or what's you know on the charts isn't really the, my bag so much but um but you know country real deep country music and and the artists that are inspired by old deep trad country i find that stuff really cool still you know and they they're just songs and their stories and it's funny that it's the songs with those stories that have stuck with me over the years you know they're not the ones that 
you know, we're in the chart for a week and then gone. Like these ones have these stories that stick with you forever, you know. Like I often still wonder what happened to the guy in, you know, in Kenny Rogers' Lucille. You know, what the hell happened to that guy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and the thing I, is, I, I, those songs stick with you, you know. They do. They do. And the thing is too, um, you know, as you get older, I think you you do appreciate some of those, uh, those artists. Like um, Simon and Garfunkel, I thought, was so uncool, you know, when I was a kid. And uh, my dad listened to it in the car all the time. But now as I'm just getting a bit older, you do appreciate those artists and those songs. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Yeah, I know. There's stuff that I used to listen to as a kid, you know, through my mum or dad. And they were avid music listeners. But it was stuff that I didn't think I'd ever be interested in. And, you know, fast forward past your... 10 or 12 years in the testosterone fueled band in your teenage years and, and all of that. And then come out the other side of that and those songs resurface. That you know, sticks with you, you know. Those stories are, are in there somewhere in, in your musical catalogue, in your, in your brain, and they just come out again and they resurface. And there's a lot of those songs from my childhood I've covered, you know, in recent years and whether it's on the road or that kind of thing. And, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, yeah, there's something special about songs that stick around, you know, forever. And I guess country music's got such a long history of being based on on the song, you know, more than anything else. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot of songs there that are important to a lot of people. Well, I mean, you know, generally there's a progression. There's uh, you, 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 you're singing about girls, then you're singing about your truck, and then you, you're singing about your breakup. And uh, your kids. <laughs> so, well, that's, you know, there's, you know what's really funny is that I spent all those years in a rock band and listening to rock music and, you know, I was, um, I probably kind of just put all my country music away in a cupboard for over a decade, you know. When you go back and actually analyse a lot of it as, and this only occurred to me by listening to a, another podcast, um, which I really fell in love with about country music. And uh, and it, it was called Cocaine and Rhinestones, and it, and it kind of highlights a different famous artist or song every episode. And it was what really showed me that, man, a lot of these old country artists and songs were some of the most ruthless, like these people were some <laughs> had some really dark, shady pasts. Oh, and yeah. They were way... They were way more rock than Motley Crue, you know, like these, these some of these country artists were just <laughs> really, really out there. And um, some of these songs have really like kind of insane histories, you know, and, and it was, and it, it, you know, as you get older, you kind of realise that there's so much more grit and dirt under the fingernails of country music than you ever thought. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, even, you know, Johnny Cash's past, if you believe half the stuff in the movie, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's Jerry Lee Lewis, for goodness sake. I mean, oh, you just yeah. like, there's, there's some stories. There's some stories, you know. It's great stuff. Yeah. yeah. So the Brisbane music scene uh, was my first taste of seeing you guys, and uh, that was really healthy in the all through the nineties. Because I remember all those bands that that came out of Brizzy. Obviously, top of mind, it was bands like um, you know Custard and um, the Gurge, I think, as well. And and there was there was a, a lot of producers based up there. Uh, I think Magoo was the guy I knew. Um, 
you know, like Brizzy yep. had a real scene. It totally had a scene. And we were only talking about this the other day in the studio, um, some mates of mine. And there's become a bit of a resurgence in the interest of people who were in the 90s music scene. You know, there's a whole Facebook page that Jane Gazzo runs associated with it. And it's incredible resource for just all this great stuff about 90s indie Oz music, I guess, you know. Sound as ever. That's what it is. It so, yeah, that's what It's so good. Uh, I know. I, it's my daily sort of login and, and just see some of the great photos. It's so good. It's fantastic. And there's such great stories and stuff. And uh, and if you can't think of a band from the time, there's someone on there that will, will know, you know. And, yeah, I think Brisbane was on the front of that wave so strongly. Like not only had a bunch of bands that were doing really well, there was, like you say, it was a really healthy scene. You could play. So you could play, you could go and see three or four bands on one bill on a Wednesday night, you know, back then, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, it was, there was shows at least five nights a week and all over the place. There was, you know, I remember Crash and Burn was the venue that we played a lot back then. I don't know what it became, but it was like this underground, <laughs> dingy, you know, below street level kind of play, very rock and roll venue, you know. Um, and you're right, Magoo was up there. There was a whole, they had the dirty room with the Gurge working out of. There was it was just a super creative city for a while. And Pangaea, um, it was like there was just you're right, yeah, custard. Um, was it women in docks we had up there? There was like just, just so yeah. many bands. It yeah. was insane, you know. And and for, and the whole gamut. It wasn't just you know we had like misery if you're into metal, you know, which I was a huge fan of misery and. And there was a whole metal scene in Brisbane, which was pretty cool. I never as got well. to get and into the metal scene in Brizzy. I mean, I was I was into the Canberra <laughs> metal scene uh, as a kid, you know, and and you'd go and see bands like Alchemist and and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and, oh wow, yeah, <laughs> that's cool. old school. But um, but yeah, Brizzy. I, I was more sort of interesting seeing uh, you know some of the rock bands and the, the small venues, and it's actually really good to see Powderfinger and those guys sort of investing back into the venues. And and there's at least two more they've they've opened up. Uh, in Brisbane, yeah. and I think maybe another one even coming now. So you know, it's just good to see live music have a, a few more homes because um, pubs don't see seem to see the benefit of offering live music these days. But maybe it's going to exactly turn yeah. around. You know, yeah, it's funny how much it's changed, really, isn't it? Like you know, like there were places like the Orient in Brisbane, which was just it was a band venue first and foremost. That's why you went there. Like it wasn't kind of existed to see bands, you know, a lot of them did. The Zoo, um, even The Healer was the blues bar, wasn't it? The Healer. And then the church next door to that got turned into a venue, which we played a few times. I can't even remember what that was called. Yeah, but there was yeah. There was so many venues. There was just so many venues around and it was um, – I guess in hindsight, we took it for granted, you know, because there's not that many anymore. And it was just, it was a pretty special time, I've got to say. It was a very, very cool time to be in a band and gigging around Brisbane. And everyone we crossed paths with and met in that scene, we still kind of know and keep in touch with, you know. Um, and not just from Brizzy in the whole, you know, touring circuit really, but, but yeah, there, there was a very cool thing in Brisbane and I was glad to be part of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you never know, you know, uh, at the time that that uh, things will change and, and you know, never you never know to, to make the best of it. But um, but looking back, it was such a cool time and so many great venues and, 
And then um, Pretty Violent Stain, you, you, you guys actually didn't sort of last as long as everyone thought you would, you know. Um, the, the sort of, it, it was only really a couple of years and then you launched this solo album in 02 and, and went on and sort of went a new sort of new angle really with your music. Yeah, I think um, it, well, that first solo record started out as a side project. Oh, right, right, yeah. It was just that's all it was going to be but just ended up becoming more enjoyable for me. So because it actually had been nearly 11 years that the band had been together. But as far as, you know, being on a releasing music on a national level, that was only really a couple of years, yeah. you know. So, um, and we did so much touring and packed everything into those years that it kind of, I think we got like prematurely burned out, you know. And we made a, the record in, in the UK and then came back and, I think we did like three national tours in support of the release and the release got moved three times, you know. So by the time it came out, we'd toured the hell out of it and we were just a bit over it. So That's what happens. Um, Yeah. It totally happens all the time, you know. It's just it's not a one-off kind of event. This happens a lot. And, yeah, I I thought I'd make a solo project as a way to kind of just get out of that bubble for a little while and it was just a bit of a side project. But to be honest, it just – I enjoyed it and it swallowed up so much of my time that I just reversed the priorities and eventually the band just kind of fell away, you know, and I just kind of, I I just enjoyed that solo thing because I didn't have to keep up the pretense of a fake democracy amongst (laughs) band members, you know. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I could just actually do what I wanted without having to kind of manipulate people and try and get them on your, you know, wavelengths. And um, because I was, you know, I was writing the songs and I kind of had a, an, a, an idea of what I wanted to do. So the solo project just made so much more sense, you know, pay people, tell them to do what you want and then make your own decisions. And, yeah, I just kind of fell in love with the, the process and just never looked back. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and, and that's the thing, I, I guess as well, um, like you pointed out, once record companies sort of get involved more and they were really pushing you guys, because I, I remember that, and also you might have new management who are forcing you out on the road to tour and, and do gigs every day. I, I got a, um, friends of mine in a band who uh, got signed to Chris Murphy and, and he um, was running them through oh, yeah. the same regime that Excess did and that was – tour as much as you can, uh, do as many gigs as you can over the weekend, do two a day if you can, and just tour relentlessly until people notice you. And um, uh, and these guys um, just burnt out, you know, and, and it's really, you know, it's really sad. Some it works out and some it just literally becomes a grind. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've practically lived, you know, in a Tarago van for four years or something on top of each other, you know, and, yeah, it gets to a point that, um, that gets difficult. And we were too young to kind of know that we needed to actually orchestrate some time away from that. We didn't realise and we just thought we'd just keep going and, you know, we'd finish a tour and turn around and leave again the next week. And we didn't realise that by forcing ourselves to have a break from each other, it may have extended the longevity. But, you know, you're just young and you're kind of we, – we actually loved it. We thought it was – a a total blast sitting in a van for six months, you know, driving around the country and playing shows. And, you know, we were playing Monday nights back then even. Like, you know, that's kind of unheard of now. But, you know, you could play any night of the week 
to fill in uh, an empty night in some town and we just thought we just thought we were living the high life you know <laughs> we loved it we, we 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 just loved it and then it did feel like we only made well we only made one full length record but you know we were together so long and toured quite a lot in that time and i think it felt like we had kind of run our course you know even only one record in but yeah it had been a long time and and we all went to school together you know in that band so we'd um we'd been like kind of together as a gang for a very very long time and i think uh I was in, I was excited about the prospect of working with some other people, you know, that I musically that I hadn't worked with anyone else before. So the whole going solo thing was great because I could just bring in musicians that I'd never played with and be kind of inspired by them. And yeah, it was a it was a really exciting time. Yeah, well, but and, and the th- I think the thing is, uh, you know, when you solo, as you said, it's it's. Uh, you don't have to pretend to be a democracy. You know, you could literally make your own decisions and and um, bring people in who you want to bring in. You don't have to have meetings about it, um, and it makes all total sense. Yes. But how's it going on tour at the moment? Because you're on your your national tour. You're, you're playing so many venues, you know, big and small. You're doing you know Newcastle, Wollongong, but you're doing of course Tamworth uh, and, and places like Bundaberg and Wollongong and Mudgee. Um, it's it's obviously different, I guess, when you get a bit older and and your kids involved. You know, it's a it's a different tour. Well, it is. I mean, thankfully, the, like, well, thankfully these days, I kind of don't really take the kids on the road much. They're older now. They they lived on the road when they were young. I bet. But, yeah. You know, but their mum and I were married then, so we would both go on the road together, and we kind of had no option but to take them. You know, um, we couldn't leave them at home on their own, so we would take them on the road and. That actually got pretty damn hard, I've got to say. Um, and we'd have a nanny on the road because, we, you know, we had to get on stage and couldn't babysit. But these days they're older and they're at school and the advantage of a divorce is that you can kind of swap. So I go, I try and go on tour when she's not on tour and then we swap and, that, you know, and that kind of thing. It doesn't always work out that nicely, cleanly, but we try. And, yeah, I'd... Touring's a rough life. I mean, and the kids loved it and it was really good for them, I think, when they were young. But once they're at school, we kind of don't want to be dragging them around and rather than go to school every day. But the tour at the moment, it's changed so much touring, not just the fact that we kind of down to weekend warrior work these days. It's um, So instead of going away for three months from home, you, you go away for three days, four days, you know. So fly to Melbourne, play four shows fly back and then the next weekend, fly to Adelaide, do three shows, fly home, you know, that kind of that kind of work. And and it it works for me. I like it. You know, it's um um I don't enjoy sitting in a Tarago for six months anymore. Like you know, I've done oh, that. Come on. <laughs> I'm not I'm not really looking to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so I like getting on a plane and going away, doing a few shows, come home have a few days off or in the studio, you know, and then play out again. And so that's definitely different. The shows are a lot earlier these days, which is, you know, used to be three or four bands on a night. By the time, if you were a headliner, the time you, it was 11 o'clock by the time you got on stage. So you didn't finish till one, you're out of there at two, then you're at a bar till four and then you're on a plane at eight. And it's, you know, I couldn't do that anymore. Insane. I can't even believe I ever did that. But <laughs> um, now we're on stage at eight pretty much back to the hotel and in bed by 10.30, you know, and 11 o'clock and it, 
it's it's pretty good when you're you know approaching 50 it's a pretty good touring lifestyle and uh it's certainly different it's there's no party no rock and roll anymore it's it's um it's very boring and cordial backstage you know yeah um i remember there being this whole thing on the tour in the band days to be like finish the show and it'd be shit let's get packed up as quick as we can and get out to party you know like we've got to get out let's get out of here and go find somewhere to party and it was that was as much a big part of it as doing the show you know and uh that's certainly not the case anymore well you're probably sort of <laughs> doing the shows to pay for the party you know and and uh yeah and now well, it's back then you were now you now you've got to pay a mortgage so you're, you're thinking more about that <laughs> more about yeah, that than right. going to party yeah <laughs> well i do want to ask you because because you are on the road and, and the, the podcast is called the rider and i want to find out so what these days do you have in your rider it's, it's obviously a bit more tame than it would have been in the young years but but what do you demand well this tour I've actually changed everything and pretty much um, we've gone really well, – most of this tour is just the two of us. It's myself and Matt and we're doing duo shows on all of those smaller seating, sitting, sitting rooms, you know, that, like you mentioned. And when the band's on the road, obviously it's a different rider. But we don't go crazy anymore. I don't even have any alcohol in the rider anymore. It's just cranberry juice is all I have. I've been trying to – I've been on the wagon for like – nearly six months. So the best way to stay on the wagon is kill your rider off, you know, rather than um, have all this stuff sitting backstage. So yeah. now it's like fruit and cheese and water and juice and, you know, it, I mean, it looks like a daycare to be honest backstage, but <laughs> that's, it, it's a good, it's a good way for us to kind of work. And I guess that's what it is. Like it's still fun, but uh, as much as it ever was, but it's, you know, it's, it's work and you know, it's like going to work and um, it's kind of a, I bounce back a bit better these days if I'm um, not partying as much, you know. <laughs> oh, it's, <laughs> so it's our, yeah. our ride is really boring, you know, really boring and um, there's nothing kind of super exciting or extravagant on it at all, you know, and um, it's always been like that but even in the band days it was never really um, I remember not really asking. For, I remember asking for things that we didn't want, like saying, please, none of this or none of that, but whatever else you want to give us is fine. I remember saying more so, like, no VB. I can't stand VB and no one in the band could, so that was actually on our rider. No VB, give us anything else you want, you know, <laughs> which I don't know where that came from. But, yeah, we have always had a pretty simple rider. Um, yeah. I enjoy reading about some of the other more extravagant, crazy ones, you know, especially like uh, big artists checking out their writers and like a motorhead writer is fantastic. I remember reading that that one once and that was that was great. Well, I found <laughs> out um, what Charlie came from and look, this this might be a bullshit story but, but um, a rock star told me that Charlie came from a band whose uh, manager was called Charlie and they would put it down as Charlie – whatever the amount was, on the budget. <laughs> and sure enough, Charlie would turn up with some Charlie. <laughs> so, That's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Uh, so, And that might have been Sabbath. I, I'm trying to remember the story back. But, um, um, yeah, it's certainly, I mean, these days you, you're probably paying for your own rider in the end anyway, so it's probably just not a bad idea to. And you know what? Once I realised we were, 
that's when things changed a little. And I, I realised that, like, you know, 15 years ago that, hang on a sec, this is coming out of our, <laughs> our ticket sales every night. What are we doing? Yeah. And there was a stage there in the band where we'd be like, you know, we're, we're top shit. We get, look at all this bread we're getting every night, you know, bottles of alcohol. And this is, you know, we're, we're really we're really doing the shit here. We're doing the business. But then, we, then you figure out that you're actually paying for it all yourself. So it's not that, you know, it's not not as exciting as you think, you know, it's all coming out of your your takings for the night. So, yeah, we're we're a bit more chilled. But there's also not just the hospitality writer, the guest list writer is something I've had for years and as far as guests go. And I always have that on our writer because without fail, no matter where you play, there's somebody that will call you half an hour before the show and, and say, oh, I heard you're playing so-and-so. I'm there tonight. I'll come along. And then it's too late, you know, tickets are done, everything's sorted. So I have guests on the rider for every single show and I put the same names on every night. <laughs> and, you know, it's, they're all just joke names. But then if, they, if anybody wants to come and it's after the bell, I can just tell them, well, you're – you can come, but you're going to have to be Mike Stand or Marshall Amp. You're going to have to be that person at the door. Yeah, there's like half a dozen names on the guest list, on the rider for the guest list because there's constantly people that want to come and it's too late for you to sort it out. So it's, it's a good way to kind of and, – and sometimes it's label people or, you know, or they'll bring radio people or something and it's so much easier just to – just to give them a fake name and then they can come on in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you always have those. I mean, I've, I've done it myself. I've texted someone and go, oh, you're playing tonight? Can you squeeze me in? And, and, and of course. Exactly, yeah. Um, and you must have played some shitty venues over the years. I mean, um, you've you got some good ones on the current <laughs> tour, but, God, you must have played some places um, in the back of, you know, Western New South Wales um, because that's where your bread and butter is and, and your, your change room is at a hallway between some of the hotel rooms or something, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been plenty and none that stick out because they're all kind of pretty much the same. But, yeah, there's been plenty and that's, that's okay. I mean, it's kind of part and parcel, you know, and but then the good ones kind of outweigh or at least balance out the bad ones. But there's, there's some crazy venues around, like, you know, especially maybe not so much now, but especially was before when I guess live music was such a uh, a bigger currency for for venues. You know, for pubs especially, they'd put music on anywhere. You know, if there was a corner with a PowerPoint in it, you could put a band in it. You know, so there has been some pretty crazy gigs over the years. That's for sure. There is one I want to um, ask you about, by the way. Um, and we have a mutual friend of uh, ours, Emma, who uh, I gave, gave me some great dirt. Um, she sent me a photo, I think, actually, of this pub. Could have been anywhere. And it had, uh, tonight, Shane Nicholson, in brackets, Casey Chambers' ex-husband. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I remember that because I took a photo of that. If, if I'm not mistaken, that was in like Bendigo or Ballarat. Um, and the first time that happened. And it was when I was newly married and it had, you know, Shane Nicholson in brackets, Casey Chambers' husband. (laughs) And then fast forward 10 years and there was another show after the divorce that said Shane Nicholson, Casey Chambers' (laughs) (laughs) ex-husband. It's brilliant. Oh, man. Yeah. I love those things. Like it's, you know, 
it, it doesn't really piss me off. Those things are funny as hell. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's just a real, I don't know. It's like the, the, just how ludicrous it is just makes me kind of crack up. I think it's yeah. really funny. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know which show that one was that you're talking about, but I do remember those two times that happening, yeah. Hey, look, it, it <laughs> might have helped your ticket sales. You never know. So uh, Probably. Yeah. And these days, uh, you know, you got you got some pretty cool hobbies. Uh, you, you make guitar pedals, is that right? You, that's, it, that's your hobby? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of my form of meditation, I guess, because it takes a, a fair – amount of concentration and so by doing it, it it's sort of like mindfulness i get to like just focus and not think about anything else and my biggest struggle has always been getting my mind to stay kind of relatively still every now and then you know it's a it's a pretty active mind so by doing that it's something that i find really sort of relaxing almost and um but then also rewarding at the end. You know, I don't do them to sell. I pretty much just give them away to friends, you know. I just make them and give them away. And I love also the fact that I can make pedals that would cost three or $400 to buy and I can make them for kind of less than 20 bucks in parts, you know. So I really like doing that as well just to kind of mess with the system, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is too um – it's it's the ultimate gift that, that, that someone's gonna gonna keep. It's not like a gift someone's gonna throw away or or uh, put in the corner of, of their lounge room or whatever. It's something they will always use and always keep. And um, if it's one of those, yeah, you know, you know the quality you need if it's going to be on the road as well. Yeah, true. And I mean, I just seriously just do it because I love it. Yeah, and then give them away because I don't need them. You know, I've got I've got them all. So it's just a bit of fun. I mean, my girlfriend thinks I'm the biggest nerd in the world, you know, but sitting there with a soldering iron and um, I'll have resistors and capacitors all around me and she doesn't know what they're called. She just calls them fleas. She said, <laughs> oh, you, you and your nerd with your fleas surrounding you. And, you know, <laughs> and I've got a little nerd corner set up in my garage so I can just sit there and make up circuit boards and, yeah, it's, it's just fun. It's I've, just a little bit of fun. Trust me, she'd love it that you've got a hobby and you're not uh, just boring or senseless. So, because, uh, you know, that's what, what what girls do. They say, look, can you find something to do and just give me some time and give me, you know, I'll go to the pub. Okay, no worries. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think she doesn't mind it. She's not even that much of a fan of music. So that's kind of what appealed to me about her. On our very first date, I took her to a, a show like a band playing and as we walked in she said oh no not live music <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so i thought this is interesting this is gonna be this is gonna be fun <laughs> just trying to find a way to impress her <laughs> yeah yeah because you, you pulled all the strings and you're like i, I got nothing yeah. left <laughs> what do i do now <laughs> yeah there's nothing i can do in music world that will impress her at all so it made it hard and made it a challenge yeah <laughs> And these days as well, you, you you also got your own sort of you know um, things you fight for, and, and and you do men's mental health is obviously a big part of your life, um, and as it is for a lot of people, you know I think I think now people are realizing uh, that guys don't speak up and don't sort of talk to their mates and and um, don't feel comfortable about it, and, and I guess that's one of the things you, you've been trying to start is that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. It's been something I've kind of dealt with personally for a long, long time. But, you know, when we, I lost one of, one of my guitar player in my band of six, six, 17 years, you know, to suicide in 2019, 
on yeah. my birthday, it kind of yeah. really shakes you, you know. And um, and we thought we had a really tight gang, and we thought we were a tight group, you know. And if something like that happens and rocks the foundations a bit, you realise that no group's as tight as you think it is. So one thing we've learnt from that is the importance of of actually making sure that the group stays that tight or your friends are uh, constantly in touch and mainly just fostering friendships rather than just taking them for granted and letting them evolve, actually actively fostering them and putting effort into them like you do a relationship, you know, like an intimate relationship. But the same thing with your friends and it's certainly, and I have a pretty small group as far as that goes and it's basically my band and the guys I work with in the studio and and it's yeah, it's it's certainly rocked us and cha- shaped a lot of this new record I made, obviously. And I think it's yeah, it's something obviously that matters a lot more to me now because once it touches you, you realise it can touch anyone. Mm. So it's yeah, it's definitely something that's um, and and when you see it that close as well, and you see like you know two daughters left behind and a wife left behind and and. There's a whole other side to it that you don't really see when you read it in the newspaper or whatever. There's, there's this whole other human side left behind. And, yeah, the, it's just such a massive thing. And um, I think it, it really shook us a lot. But if there's any silver lining to that, it's taught us, yeah, the importance of being open and talking more and, um, and like I said, fostering those friendships, act- actively working to make them uh, or keep them flourishing. Yeah, exactly. Now, well said. And and I think uh, you know we have many mates who we just speak to every every week or every couple of weeks, and you you just say, "How you doing? I'm fine." And and then sadly, you have no idea. And I think what you're doing is really is uh, really important. Um, now you got the album uh, "Living in Color," and a couple of singles from that you know have come out. We have got Helena, which is out now, and uh, and you'll have your way, which was out a little while ago now. Um, I, I, I love how there's a bit of cynicism with this song, I think, from, from every when I heard it. I, I, I think um, I, could, I couldn't work out whether it was for a, about a person or whether it was about a situation. <clears throat> I don't exactly remember if it was a person or a situation. It's probably a little bit of an amalgamation of all those things. It's, there's definitely a cynicism in it. The song, well, it, it kicks off with the line, something like it's, Ain't it hard to believe in love when you're on the ground spitting blood? The whole idea of that, <laughs> yeah. the, the whole idea of that is it follows on. It's the opening line of this record, which is the follow-up record to Love and Blood, the record Love and Blood. So it, the whole point of it is that it kicks off this record, referencing the last one, as if to say, all right, this is where we're at three years later, you know, on the same stuff, the same topic, but all this other stuff's happened in the meantime and, it was kind of setting the tone, I guess. But yes, it's a it's two sides to a coin. To a coin, that song. One is the growing, and the, these 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 are two things that are running simultaneously. I find in my life, two timelines. One is growing cynicism, and you know, kind of peak level um, grumpy old man. But also at the same time, what we just talked about this growing importance of. Friendships and welcoming that into your life rather than, you know, being the um, the hermit curmudgeon all the time, which is my natural kind of uh, default state. 
usually. So, yeah, the song is kind of about how those two things are congruently kind of evolving as I get older. So it, which is kind of weird because they're, they're almost they're sort of opposite uh, personality traits. But yeah, yeah. Um, it's just part of getting older, I guess, realising <clears throat> Realizing some things that are important to you that you didn't know were important to you before. Obviously, that happens to all of us as we get older. Having kids does that to you, you know, changes your perspective. And that's what it is. It's a perspective change. Well, certainly, writing songs, I can yeah. imagine, uh, is very, very different <coughs> writing them as an adult and, and, and having gone through a divorce um, as opposed to when you're in your early 20s and you might have broken up a couple of times, but but you haven't really lived and uh, it, it, it would change and broaden your, your writing, I'm sure. Sure. And getting older, that's how we realise that life is actually pretty messy. You know, being a human is pretty messy. And you, you think it is when you're 20, but it's really not. You know, it's just really not for most of us anyway. It certainly wasn't messy for me. It was a, it was a breeze compared to what life can throw at you. And so, yeah, your, your writing reflects that and your records reflect that. And um, I look at the records a bit like journals, you know, because I've never kept a journal. I'm just not disciplined enough to do it regularly. And I think over the years I've learned that that's what most of the albums are. They're just kind of little journals of each three-year pocket of your life, you know, and you kind of gauge your life in records. It gets to a point where you think, oh, yes, that's where I was at when I made that record. You know, I remember that and I remember what state I was in or I remember what I was struggling with and then, oh, that record, that's, the, you know, that that was that period and they're all kind of related to a part of your life I guess you know oh that record was the time Arlo was born my first son and you know I remember that making that record was all about having a new baby and not the record but recording it with a baby in the studio and you know you kind of relate certain aspects of your life to each record and I like that in a way gives them gives them a real sense of importance in your own history well it's yeah it's a chapter of your life i totally get it and, and i'm the same I, I hear a certain song on the radio and i straight away remember what i was going through when i heard that song and and yeah it, it, and it would be more so if you're a recording artist and you worked on these songs and you sweated over them for for weeks on end i'd say and and living yeah. in color came out last year um it i'm assuming most of the songs were written well before covid and and uh, lockdowns and all that sort of stuff but um, was it an album that, that, that people were saying to delay a little bit and see what happens and and tour? Because uh, it was hard to re- release anything the last couple of years. Uh, it totally was. Yeah, you're right. It was mostly done almost entire. I mean, the writing was done before COVID. Most of the recording was done during it, uh, during the start of it anyway, so, which is why I ended up having to do most of it myself because um, out of necessity, I couldn't have people coming to the studio. So yeah, yeah, it was it was predominantly just a bedroom, re- or like a, a bedroom record made in my studio, but on my own pretty much. And I had some friends flying parts in remotely, you know, of the internet, and and then one of the great thing the pandemic did on those lockdowns did was force us to find other ways to make music without being in the same room together. So. Not only was it this, my record I was doing it on, but all the records I was producing, um, which was a lot during COVID. Uh, there was a lot of artists wanting to make records and they all had to be done remotely. So you've got, you know, trumpets and flying in from Melbourne while singers 
uh, flying their parts in from Sydney and there's a steel guitar coming from Nashville and they're all kind of converging on a Thursday and you put the track together and it's a pretty kind of cool thing that we had to all had to create this kind of new process I guess to kind of get around the fact that we couldn't all be together to make music so um, it was actually kind of cool that we could still make music through all of that time and my record I was just making for fun around that stuff pretty much I was just doing an hour on it here and there and and so it took about 18 months really and then one day I realized kind of sounds finished like a record so I might just finish working stop working on it now (laughs) and we we were going to release it you're right but you know then the tour couldn't happen so we had to we wanted to put it off and the touring is such a big part of it for me like a record is not a record without a tour you know it always has been so the fact that the tour couldn't happen at the time I felt like was that's half the equation missing you know we need to wait until we can tour again and so we rescheduled but little did we all know back then that it was going to take a little longer than we thought so I think we got two or three reschedules on the whole tour and then eventually just have to bite the bullet and say, no, you get to a certain point and a record gets too old, you know, and it needs to come out because you just can't artistically move on, you know. Oh, I was ready to make start making another record and I, needed, I wanted to focus on new stuff. So I needed to go through that cathartic experience of releasing it, you know, so... We, we held it off as long as we could and then thought, no, let's just go for it. So you are kind of chucking a record out into a void, releasing it during a lockdown because <clears throat> you're, you're throwing it out there and you're not even aware of people hearing it. You're not getting to be on the road and see people's faces when you're performing it. You're not getting to go into radio stations and sing songs and, and talk about it. So it did feel a little strange, like it wasn't even really released. But now that the tour's happening... Everything feels kind of like the universe has found equilibrium a little bit again, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's still some shows that aren't happening, obviously, but as certain areas kind of open up quicker than others, that kind of thing. But it feels really good, and I'll never take it for granted ever again, you know, being able to play a show. It's It feels really good to be able to do it again. Oh, it's the same with being an audience member. I mean, I will never ever say no to an invite to a gig ever again. Uh, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I think I think I, I missed two concerts in the last uh, two weeks before COVID really took hold, and I I still regret it. I mean, it was bloody white. You probably Snake. regretted it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought, oh, really? Why would I want to go and see White Snake? And, and then I was like, Damn, I wish I go and saw White Snake. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, I hear you. Yeah, so, I totally yeah. hear. It's that human thing of sharing an experience with other people, not even just a gig. It could be a, a cinema or a restaurant. Or, humans like going out and doing things around other humans, you know, and so I think everyone's missed that. And yeah, you can feel it in the rooms now when you play a show. You can feel that we've gone through something that big that every that shifted everyone away from each other because there's a real different feeling in a lot of the shows now. Um, in these places that have just opened up again, you know. So, yeah, you can definitely tell something's happened and shifted and people are just so happy to be experiencing something with other humans again. Yeah, everyone's very appreciative. And, um, yeah, I had that one experience going to a big gig, uh, I think, middle of last year before it got you know bad again and um, with a full crowd and, and the energy and, and the sweat and the smells and, and everything. <laughs> and I was like, this is great. It's amazing. And then one week later, everything's turned to shit again. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never did we think we would miss sticky carpet and the smell of stale cigarettes so much. 
you know, until this happened. And then you kind of think, oh, <laughs> I really do miss, you know, sweaty people all around me squishing me at a show, you know. Um, it was something we, yeah, I think we did. We all missed it, and that's great that there's there's some of it coming back. Totally. totally. Well, good luck for the rest of the tour. Uh, you've Thank got you, mate. Uh, shows in Tamworth and Toowoomba and Bundaberg and uh, off to Brisbane and Mwollombar and, and Mudgee, and it continues. Uh, you've got five golden guitars as well. Uh, hopefully you get them all, and, and uh, I really feel like we're all – hungry for a, a great year of music and it was really good to catch up with you and it's been way too totally. long. Totally. Likewise. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you having me. Stay well and, and uh, love to the family. We'll see you soon. Likewise. Thanks, mate. Take care. Well, there he is, Shane Nicholson. What a great bloke. Make sure you check out the new album, Living in Colour. And, of course, his national tour continues. You can follow the Rider Pod on Instagram and keep up to date on what's to come. Well, what a way to bring out season one of The Rider. Next week... Taylor Hansen. Yes, Hansen are back with a brand new album. It's coming out next month called Red, Green, Blue. Taylor Hansen, next week on the Rider Pod. We'll catch you then. <laughs>